0: Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, my friends. Thank you for joining me today. I'm recording this while I'm watching the snowfall. It's December 9th, and it's our first real snowfall of the year. Um, so I get excited about that sort of thing. I just wanted to ask you guys, if you are enjoying the show, would you please take the trouble to um, whatever platform you listen to it on, just go and leave a review and a rating or whatever's available. If you listen in app Apple Podcasts, you can leave a star rating and review. You just scroll down to the bottom of the list of episodes in under my podcast, and you'll eventually get to the area where you can leave a star rating and review for a podcast. So that would really help me out and let people know about the podcast. Today, I'm going to share an interview I did in September with Linda Thompson. Linda Thompson is an award-winning author of World War II fiction. Um, We talk a lot today about her debut novel, which released two years ago, actually. That's called The Plum Blooms in Winter, and it was about... World War II in the Pacific Theater, which is kind of an appropriate topic for today since we just passed the date of remembering Pearl Harbor on December 7th. So we mostly talk about Linda's debut novel. That's because it was September and it was still three months until the release of Linda's second book, which releases December 15th. So that's next week. And we talk a little bit about the the new book, which is called The Mulberry Leaf Whispers. Um, but we don't really get into that until toward the end of the program. However, it's a really fascinating conversation about how Linda got into writing and how she found out about this story that prompted her debut novel. I do want to note here that Linda has generously made um, a free ebook available to my listeners exclusively. So nobody else can get this book for free, except for you guys. Um, It's going to be available for the next three weeks. So stay tuned after the interview and get details on how to find it. Here's my interview with Linda. Linda Thompson, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Allison. It is just a treat to be here. Oh, I hate that.
0: (laughs) Are you making a play on my name? I didn't mean to. <laughs> that was accidental. That was, oh, good. That that worked out. Um, your debut novel was titled, or is titled, The Plum Blooms in Winter. What can you tell us about this book?
1: Well, I think, you know, a lot of writers have this story about their writing journey where they've known since they were 20 or 16 or 12, you know, that they were going to be a writer. And that yeah. isn't my story. My story is I came across this story, this this true historical event, and mm-hmm. felt like it was crying for someone to write it. <laughs> and so that's how I became a writer because this story called me. My career background, I've been a, a marketing professional for something like three decades. let's not let's not think about that too much, but um, <laughs> I, I felt confident that I could express myself in writing, but I'd never really and, – and I've always loved reader uh, reading. I think probably that's true of most novelists. You love reading, right. and then you're like, well, if a book can do this to me, could I write something that would do this to someone else? So, mm-hmm. maybe that bug was buzzing around in the back of my mind a little bit, but um, I ne- I hadn't really seriously contemplated becoming a writer until I came across this story, And the way it happened is my husband um, is very much into military history. It's a longtime interest of his. And so he was reading a World War II history book. And he came to me one day with it open to a page about two-thirds of the way through. And he said, you need to read this right here, this page. And so, I read mm-hmm. it, and it just was a really compelling, and it's, it was just a page in this history book. It was a little bit of a rabbit trail the guy had gone on, but it was right. a very compelling story about two people in just very dark circumstances, and how the Lord just reached into their lives and grabbed them and transformed their circumstances and transformed their characters and just made them over. uh um, Wow. And it, and it just really hit me that here it was in a secular history book. <laughs> yeah. That, what? That's amazing. But you know, God's hand was all over it. And I just felt like this, this is a real thing God did. And this needs to be more widely known. And someone should write a whole book about this. And then after right. a whole lot of prayer and seeking, I wound up concluding that I was being called to be that someone.
0: Right. So what was the story? Can you it a little? <laughs>
1: well, and then here's where it gets hard, because if I tell you too much of the story, then it's going to spoil my novel. The story is about the Doolittle Raid, which was the earliest air raid over Japan in World War II, way back in 1942. And it was just, it was very well known at the time because it was just audacious. It was very creative. It was out of the box. It was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't call it a suicide mission, but the men who volunteered for the mission knew that they were taking a significant risk. Um, mm. th- this was just frankly ballsy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and at that point we were like six months into World War II, and and kind of like today, people were just demoralized. You know, we uh, we yeah. we know that we know the end of the story now. We know that in the end, it was the bloodiest war in history. But we know that in the end and there aren't a lot of times when you can say this quite so unequivocally, but we know that in the end, the forces of good triumphed. Right. I think one, one reason World War II stories are still compelling, you know, people are always a mixed bag. History is always nuanced. But when you look mm-hmm. at World War II, it's one of the clearest cases you can find of this is good and that is evil. <laughs> And good one,
0: <laughs> yes. Good triumphed over evil. In yes,
1: with with much toil and courage and perseverance and faith and and sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, the forces of good really did triumph. And God was definitely involved. Right. Um, you know, people use the phrase, the miracle at Midway, which Midway was the turning point of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but God's hand was all over it, and good triumphed over evil. And I think people are looking for that today. People are looking for that hope that… God's got this. <laughs> right. God has a plan in this. Good is going to triumph although the process may be painful. Yes. Um, but, but we just need to keep looking to him and persevere. Right. And now I've lost sight of what your original question. Oh, your question was what the heck is my story? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right that's exactly what i said <laughs> <laughs> well so 1942 the doolittle raid uh, um, our morale was really low because the japanese at that point were winning everywhere you know they they just trounced us mm-hmm. at pearl harbor they trounced the british in singapore they you know yeah. they, they seemed to be just um unbeatable and yet here we were um you know, kind of thrown into this war, not really intending to be there, but now we're there and we're and we're in it to win it. Um, but morale right. was pretty low, and we really need a, needed a morale boost. And so, um, the Doolittle raid—it was a little bit symbolic. It was only 16 planes. You know, the 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 actual military damage it did was was minimal, but the morale boost of knowing that we. Those guys got there and they dropped bombs on Tokyo, and you know smoke was rising within sight yeah. of the Imperial Palace. That and and it made a big difference to the Japanese too, because they really did change their strategy. Um, mm-hmm. They had kind of believed that they were invincible, and and learning that they weren't, and that yes, you know we we could send bombers over their home island and drop bombs there. Um, changed their strategy immensely, and it's it's part of why we won at Midway, and part of why the world tur- the war turned around. Anyway, bottom line, this was very early in World War II, and um, it's it's generally just a huge adventure story. But my particular little piece of it has to do um, all of the planes ran out of fuel, um, mm-hmm. and all of the there were sixteen planes, all of them ran out of fuel. All of the the crews were either forced to crash land or to ditch. And I follow the story of a of one of the crews who had to ditch their plane. They had to parachute out, and um, they mm-hmm. were captured by the Japanese. And so, they went through basically the whole war as prisoners of Japan. And, you know, if you ever read or saw the movie Unbroken, you know that that was a pretty dark scenario. You know, those, yeah. they endured systematic torture, um, starvation. Solitary confinement for thirty-six months. These men were in solitary wow. confinement, um, That's and hard only to imagine at the beginning. It is the 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 darkness of the situation they were in is hard to imagine. And somewhere in the- so all of this is true. By the way, the the bones of the plum blooms in winter is is a work of fiction. It's a novel, but the bones of the story are true. So everything right. I'm telling you is straight out of history. Mm-hmm. Well, sometime in the middle of that. Um, they were given a group of spiritual books one of which was the bible
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so the character that i'm following in the plum blooms in winter he uh, he had grown up in a christian home but he had rejected it he'd walked away from the lord didn't think he needed it but you yeah. know here he is you know in daily fear of is he ever going to come home in solitary confinement and and he starts reading the bible and he just really discovers it's richness and discovers what his parents were talking about all those years. <laughs> right. <laughs> Discovered that from Genesis through Revelation, it speaks of the redeeming work of, of Christ. And at that point, he knew he needed some redeeming work. He was down. He was desperate. He was afraid of hell. He knew he needed some redeeming work. And, and so he led himself to the Lord. Um, and then it just changed everything for him. It changed his whole prison experience. And, you know, he definitely credits the Lord with bringing him through. Mm-hmm. So, that's about a third of the book, but the rest of the book is after he survives his experience and comes back to Japan as a missionary, He, the, the Lord told him towards the end that he wanted him to come back to Japan as a Christian missionary, and that he right. wanted this prisoner who had endured so much at the hands of the Japanese, he wanted him to go back to Japan and to show them what forgiveness meant. And to show Mm. them what love your – to be a walking object lesson of what love your enemies means. Right. So, he's back in Japan. He's a missionary. He's speaking a lot of places. The the Japanese are very curious about his message because this whole concept of loving your enemies and forgiveness is completely foreign to their culture at that point. And um, this is the story that caught me. A young woman shows up at one of his meetings with a knife in her purse because the Doolittle Raid killed a man she loved, and she is bound to take vengeance by the, the standards of their culture. Vengeance is what is required. And so she shows up at one of his meetings with a knife in her purse, and she's going to assassinate him if she gets a chance. The book is the story about what happens mm-hmm. as a result, and it's the story of how she got to that place. Right. You know, because I had his story in this history book, I understood how he got where he was. But her story really intrigued me. Yeah. You know who who are you and who did how did you come to a place where you would show up at a religious meeting with a knife in your purse intending to thrust it into
0: someone? How did you get to that place? Yeah. You read what you read in the history book. Was that about the character that you based your protagonist on? Yes. So the history book, and there there have been more than one, but the history book was a
1: spoke of a Doolittle Raider named Jacob Deshazer.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and there's, you know, there are a couple other books about him. He's also, if you Google him, you'll certainly find a lot of blog posts and so on telling his story. Right. Um, the woman is a little bit more of a, a shrouded. So my character is fictional. My character is not Jacob Deshazer. Um, right. He differs from Jacob de Schaser in a lot of important ways, but he does very closely follow Jacob de Chazer's spiritual journey, because right. I wanted that to be real. I wanted the spiritual journey, and, and also all the historical facts in the novel follow real history very closely.
0: Yes, right. But I,
1: I wanted the spiritual journey to be real. But the woman in the story is much more shrouded in mystery. Mm-hmm. Historically speaking, not much is known about her. Um, So I was free to make
0: her pretty completely fictional. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I think it must have been, um, it seems like it would have been a little tricky because you changed Jacob DeShazer's name to your protagonist is Dave Dellum. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the other raiders kept their real names. Was it difficult to use real people in the novel? How did you figure out how to intertwine their stories with the fictional characters um how did you navigate all of that?
1: Well, that is a good question. I mean, it it definitely I I wrote the novel as is often the case with a debut novel. Um I wrote it over the course of like 7 years, so I had a lot of different iterations right. to work through all of this. Um it wound up being fairly easy to delineate because the the eight prisoners that are in my story came from two different planes. Mm-hmm. So I made one of those planes fictional. the 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 plane that has my protagonist is a fictional plane, and all of the characters on it are fictional. Okay, but the other plane is a real plane, and right. I did my best to accurately capture all of those characters as real people and their real histories and the real story of their
0: actual mission. Mm-hmm. And they are not um, not as primary to the story as as the fictional characters. So that probably made it a little bit simpler to separate them.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: Okay, um where did you get the title for the book?
1: <laughs> well, it originally had a working title that honestly didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. But um just really thinking about the 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 protagonist, the woman and the resilience that she shows. I mean, her goals were very flawed. Um, but the resilience that she showed, the persistence that she showed in reaching them, and of course, a lot of the writing in the book is very influenced by Japanese beautiful aspects of Japanese culture, right? Um, you know, beautiful imagery, beautiful proverbs. So it the the title of the book came out of a Japanese proverb, which has to do with the Japanese are, are very keen observers of nature. Um, and particularly, they love flowers. And it's not a girly thing in Japanese culture. Um, the tough samurai, you know, often right. had their crests would be a flower. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, the plum is, there's this the cycle of flowers through the years, the, the year, the, the plum is the earliest thing to bloom. Mm. And it will start blooming, you know, the, the buds will push out in February in the frost. Mm-hmm. And so, it it has become a symbol of persistence, of hardiness, because it will push through the snow. Right. And the the saying that the book is kind of based on is, you know, other flowers may be showier, but when you have seen a plum blossom in the frost, that is a sight that, you know, will not leave your, your, your mind very quickly. Mm. So, it's sort of like the character quality of the plum blossom overcomes perhaps its lack of showiness. Right. And so... Both of my characters really um, showed that kind of persistence, that kind of hardiness, that ability to bloom even in hardship.
0: Yes. Now, if we go back to thinking about Dave in prison and the, the torture that he and the other prisoners, the other raiders that were captured, endured, um, there were a number of ways that they devised to keep their morale up during their imprisonment, which I found very uh, just I found it amazing that they could withstand all of this and also just that they were able to just um, make it through with certain things to help them endure. Um, So they used Morse code to communicate. Right. And they, then they did um, mental exercises that one of the, one of the prisoners kind of led them in. Um, And then of course the books, that they were able to acquire and read, which ended up being spiritual books, and then there was the tin cup news service. Can you <laughs> tell our listen tell our listeners what that was? Well, and all of that, I didn't make up those details. All of those
1: came out of that's that's really yeah. what happened, and that's really their story. And and um, one of the prisoners, Meter, was was you know particularly rose to leadership among them and and really encouraged them in all of these mental exercises. They were together right. maybe 15 minutes a day, and so that mm-hmm. was that was just huge for them. Just even those 15 minutes a day of being able to see each other and make sure everyone was okay and check in. Um, but yeah. meter uh, meter really guided them in the whole thing about coming up with mental exercises that would help them. And he was fresh. a real
0: yeah, he was a real character. yeah, he was one of the real, real hysterical person.
1: characters. Yeah, so. At one point, they were in sort of their own. They, they were always treated. They weren't treated as typical prisoners of war. They were always treated as war criminals, um, even right. though there was there was no legal justification for that. The uh, the Japanese just decided that that was that was going to be their approach. So, they were sort of cordoned off in their own section in a bigger camp that had a lot of you know sort of more standard prisoners of war in it. And um, at one point they realized that the implements that their food was being served to serve them on these little tin trays and tin cups were mm-hmm. were circulating through the prison and would be seen by other prisoners and uh, right. so they they started scratching cuz one of their fears was you know no one even knows we're here the japanese could do anything to us and there would be no accountability and right. so they realized that they uh, they could take nails and they could just scratch things on these tin cups and so they mm-hmm. they scratch, you know, do little raiders and their names, and just so someone would know they was they were there. And right. um, sure enough, it took a few days, but eventually they started getting cups back with messages on them. <laughs> That's great. so they were aware that you know there were U.S. Marines who were also on the base, and they were getting encouraged by getting some news from the U.S. Marines, like. You know, Wake Island has been recaptured, things like that. So, they were getting news wow. that the war had turned in our favor. And in the end, right. those, those cups, I, this is kind of outside the scope of my novel, but in the end, those cups saved their lives because um, because of the fact that the Marines, the, the normal prisoners, the Marines, knew they were there. Um, mm. This got reported to the authorities um, shortly after the surrender. And so the Doolittle Raiders were saved, whereas otherwise they might, you know, the Japanese might have killed them rather than than giving them their freedom again. So in the end, those tin cups actually saved
0: their lives. That's amazing. Later in the book, one of the characters, I won't say which one, has a conversion experience that's precipitated by a dream. And I love, I just had to mention this because I don't know if you'll have anything to say about it, or it's not really a question, it's more of a comment. <laughs> because I, I just love the description of that dream, because the character hears God's voice and is enveloped with a sense of being absolutely known, yet completely accepted. And I loved that picture of God's love for us. It was just beautiful to me. Oh, well, thank you. I, My husband
1: and I decided to write that in because we downplay this whole world of visions and dreams a bit in the Western Church, but when you look mm-hmm. at the Church in cultures where the Bible isn't as readily available as it is here, you find that dreams and visions center in people's conversion experiences much more than we account yes, for here.
0: I've and heard that too.
1: So we felt that, given where she was, that that was that that was real realistic that the Lord might very well reach out to her with a dream.
0: Right. So is your husband a writer also, or is he just like your, the person you consult when you're working on a book? Or Well, I joke around that
1: he's my chief military
0: research officer.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very avid reader, and he reads very broadly, and mostly he's my idea generator. Mm, <laughs> if neat. I've got a good plot twist, most likely it came out of my husband's brain. <laughs>
0: oh, Cool. That's great. Yeah, that's team. a great
1: resource to have for sure.
0: Yeah. The U.S. recently celebrated the 75th anniversary of VJ Day, which was the end of World War II in the Pacific. Um, can you tell us what happened on that date? Because I think you have a, a greater knowledge of it than I do.
1: <laughs> well, I think for whatever reason, we remember the European theater better than we do the Pacific theater, although it was huge. I mean, I think I think we had more I think we had more men fighting in the Pacific than we did in Europe actually than you know mm. as far as the US is concerned but we we have a very clear memory about the holocaust and nazism and you know D day right. and all of that and and you know all of those things well not all of those things but there were D days in the Pacific too and we don't remember them with with nearly the same level of um, clarity and right. so I think this year was a big year because it was the 75th anniversary of both VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, and VJ Day, Victory in, Victory in Japan. And I yeah. think both of those events kind of went by without much um, heralding, which I thought was kind of a shame because yes. <laughs> World War II was huge, and we are losing the greatest generation, which is which is sad. And yeah, and, uh, to just kind of anyway. Um, So VJ Day was the day and there was so much really very interesting drama associated with it. But it was the day that um, Hirohito, the emperor of Japan, uh, announced that he would that Japan was going to accept the terms of surrender. So that was actually the end of World War Two. That was the last of it. And you know, all yeah. those millions of men fighting in the Pacific could finally come home. And so it was wow. a huge celebration. And and we've probably all seen the iconic images, like the one where the sailor grabs a nurse in Times Square and plants a kiss on her. That was VJ Day. That was the VJ celebration. Okay, and yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've seen that, definitely.
1: Because that was the end. I mean, yeah, right. the, the war in Europe ended, but we still had a war going in the Pacific up until August 15th. Mm-hmm. But it it's... Um, you know we had proposed the allies had proposed the the terms of surrender to japan several days before that i don't know the exact date but basically we said to them it must be unconditional surrender and mm-hmm. so there was some some dickering back and forth and you know they would accept a, con- a conditional surrender and and we said no it has to be unconditional and meanwhile, since they weren't surrendering, the war continued, and people were dying, and yeah. we felt like we had to deploy the atom bomb, so we bombed Nagasaki, we bombed Hiroshima, which were obviously huge tragedies, you right. know, and, and none of that needed to happen if they had just agreed to the surrender, you know, a few days earlier. And right. so, it was obviously really huge when they finally came out and said on August 15th, okay okay we're done the war is over you know we'll we'll accept the terms of surrender and it was it was unfortunately you know the bombings of nagasaki and hiroshima that finally convinced hirohito that that japan really just could not continue to fight mm-hmm. and had they not surrendered i mean we we had just um Completed the battles of, and here I'm a little out of the area where I'm super expert, but we just, we've completed Iwo Jima and Okinawa, which were some of the bloodiest battles that happened anywhere in the war, Mm -hmm. Um, because the Japanese just, it was part of their cultural mindset that they were going to fight to the death. So right. you know, whereas Europe, whereas Westerns Westerners, when things get hopeless, will surrender. We're out of ammunition. You know, yeah. we, we can no longer realistically expect to win a battle. We will surrender, and you know, prisoners of war are generally well treated and generally get to go home eventually. But it doesn't work that way in the Japanese mindset. We we fight to the death, and mm-hmm. even if all we've got left, they they were actually. Um, Had we had to invade the home islands, um, the death toll would have been millions, because what we saw on um, islands like Saipan, I actually, the the short story I just finished writing was about Saipan. And what we saw on Saipan is that soldiers who were left behind the front would fight to the death, um, Mm -hmm. that civilians would either, you know, they, they would be part of the battle or they would commit suicide, So, people were just dying in caves, you know, because uh, they didn't believe in surrendering. People were, at the end of the the Battle of Saipan, when everyone had sort of been flushed to the north end of the island, civilians were just jumping off of cliffs, because they had been filled with all this propaganda about how they couldn't surrender. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was horrible. And so, if we had invaded the home islands, the death toll would have been in the millions. Wow. You know, it, it certainly wasn't an easy decision to deploy the atom bomb, but But honestly, um, the alternative would have been worse. Right. And the other thing that was really intriguing about August 15th is that the emperor himself recorded a broadcast announcing that he was accepting. It was only a four-minute broadcast, but Hirohito himself recorded a broadcast announcing in Japanese that they were accepting the terms of surrender and addressing his people and explaining the rationale. Mm. And the thing that we can't wrap our heads around this, you know, our politicians talk to us all the time, um, right? Tweet at us all the time. <laughs> Hirohito's voice was never heard, oh. never heard. He was he was the 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 lovely Japanese metaphor for that is that he was the voice of the crane. The crane oh. passes way overhead, and you never hear its passing, and mm-hmm. that's how holy Hirohito was. He was the crane. And wow. He, he would, he would go to council meetings, and he would not even speak in the council meetings, you know, he would la- he would convey his, his ideas and thoughts to his inner circle, and then they would be responsible for reporting it out, because he was too holy for people to hear his voice. And so, this was just, for his citizens, his subjects, two yes. enormous things that they never imagined happened in the same day. Enormous thing number 1 was they actually got to hear the emperor's voice. Enormous thing number 2 was the emperor was announcing that Japan, the invincible, you know, land of the gods was right. going to do something that had never happened before in history. Japan was surrendering. So it was just a it was just an inconceivable blow
0: to mm-hmm. the Japanese. Wow. You mentioned um, you wanted to talk about cancel culture. Is that related to VJ Day?
1: Well, it's related to one of the one of the questions you sort of sent in your pre work was um, why historical fiction. You know, why yes. why am I devoting my life at this point to writing historical fiction, and and why is it important? And to me, this year just really proves it out.
0: <laughs> right. What is
1: cancel culture? Well, cancel culture is. You know, frankly, it's out of Marxism. We're we're not going to remember anything about true history, and we're going to replace it with our sort of sanitized, um, mm-hmm. politically correct version of history. And we're going to pull down all the statues. I mean, it, it. To be honest, I kind of get, and I know not there are definitely people who won't agree with me, but I get why some people might be offended at honor being given to a Civil War general. I right? Mean, we we can we can get really, you know. Nuanced and talk about who was who was Lee, for example, really, and and you know was yes. he really you know an, an awful person? Was he personally a slaveholder? I mean, we can we can do all of that sort of thing, but uh, I, I understand why some people might be offended at honor being given to a, a civil war general who fought to preserve slavery. Mm-hmm. But this has gone way beyond that. I mean, we are tearing down statues of abolitionists. We are Mm -hmm. tearing down statues of elks, for goodness sake. (laughs) But what what did the elk do? (laughs) And it's all about obliterating real history and replacing it with what someone wants history to look like. And why is that bad? Well, we've all heard the phrase, those who don't, if we don't remember history, we're destined to repeat it. And when I look at really the anarchists who, there are, and let me step back and say, I know there are a lot of really good people with good intentions who want to see racial justice and, you know, have, have, Valid reasons or at least believe that they have valid reasons to be out on the streets protesting. And I'm not faulting that at all. I think it's I think it's great that people I'm a big supporter of freedom of speech, and I yes. think it's wonderful that people are doing peaceful protests, especially to support the rights of others. Right. But you know what we've seen so much is that those protests are tipping over into just rioting anarchy, mm-hmm. lawlessness, and cancel culture.
0: Well, and, and freedom of speech goes again. I mean, cancel culture is is at odds with freedom of speech. Right. So, <laughs> right, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I'm free to speak my mind, but you're not free to speak yours. Well, that doesn't if you don't agree with me, and that doesn't really work. No. And I think when I was a kid, I read pretty widely, um, Solzhenitsyn, and. I look at mm-hmm. all, I look at the riots on the streets today and the people who just want to tear down our whole system and install a socialist system that they believe will be better. And I'm like, the fundamental problem here is they don't know history. They don't know that there was a Bolshevik res- revolution. They don't know that there was a people's revolution in China. They don't know that there was a revolution in Cuba, Venezuela, right. you know, the list, and all of them ended very badly. Mm-hmm. All of them ended in misery and bloodshed and starvation and and if we don't study history, we don't know those things. And if right. we think we're going to create our own history that's completely divorced from the past, well, it you know it just it it hasn't ever happened. It's not going to happen now. And it's I, it, this year has really kind of cemented for me my calling. Yes, <laughs> as a writer of historical fiction, because people need to remember the past. And you know you get this kind of dry version in in history classes in high school. Maybe now I'm not even sure you get that, but you get this sort of dry version in in high school that's all about dates and names and yes. And you don't understand. You don't get your head around the fact that these are real people who had real lives that were impacted by these catastrophic catastrophic events of history. Mm-hmm. Um, but people lived out real lives during the course of those and were impacted in various
0: ways. And I think
1: people who won't engage with a history book may well engage with a work of historical fiction.
0: Absolutely. I think the medium of story just makes it so much more accessible to... I mean, even my my own eighth grader will come home and say, I just don't like history. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I write <laughs> historical fiction. You must love history, but it actually just um I get more upset with the the history book writers who make it so yes. dry yes. because there is so much richness and and so much story in history, and it's so important to our lives today, as you're explaining so eloquently.
1: Well, I don't know about that. I feel like I'm tripping all over myself.
0: (laughs) But if I'm not being (laughs) eloquent,
1: (laughs) perhaps at least I'm being heartfelt. (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, So you certainly seem to have um, a very wide knowledge of history can you tell me about your research process?
1: <laughs> well, I would say I have a very pocketed knowledge of history. <laughs> well, there, no. there are certain things I know well, and then there are, you know, vast tracks that remain to be explored. Right. You know, that is a, that is a common question. Um, what's your research process? And right now, I would guess that every single historical fiction author is going to answer it more or less the same way. Google. <laughs> <laughs> Google is amazing what you can come up with and... Um, especially if you're persistent, you can just come up with astonishing things on Google. And for right. example, in my, uh, my next novel, the one that's coming out in December, I had a, uh, a, a scene of, a, an important, a single scene, but it was an important scene set in Cuba in, uh, in 1947, I guess it was. And, you know, you can get on Google maps and you can get street view and you can right. actually walk the streets of a place that you're trying to write about. Yes. And- Especially, you know, Cuba, unfortunately, hasn't changed that much since the late 40s or early 50s. Mm. So, I was really able to use Google to just go over there and look around. (laughs) Yeah. But I think another resource that I had that's a little bit unusual, not every historical fiction author has this, is um, there was film in the 40s. And so, right. another real resource for me were uh, Japanese films. I found a I found a, a sort of a noir director who did films about the kind of people I'm writing about, about the Yakuza, the gangs, the street mm. life. And, and yeah. those films were set in Osaka, which is the city where my story was set in the late 40s and early 50s. So, right. I was able to use those uh, films kind of as a a time tunnel <laughs> mm-hmm. to take me back and really see, you know, what things looked like and how people interacted with each other. And um, th- so that was, that was a fabulous resource that not every historical fiction author has.
0: Right. It was that, what was your main source of information about Japan and Japanese culture? Was it the films? Because I think that would be very difficult. I, you know, I've always lived in the U S and I can't imagine trying to understand that culture and, and present it accurately. Um, so how did you go about doing that?
1: Well, that's a great point because it is very foreign. Um, right. You know, well, I, so I've, I've traveled there a few times. I I've okay. never resided there, but I've traveled there a few times. When I was working on Plum, I actually had some Japanese business associates who were very willing to answer questions. And, and fascinatingly, one of the, you know, I mean, early on, especially, there were some just kind of big things I just really did not understand. And it was great to have Japanese people I could question about that. Right. Um, This this gentleman who was a client of mine, actually, was a Japanese man, but he uh, spent about half his time in the US. So he was able to really compare both of the cultures and You know, understand where I was coming from, but then relate to me where a Japanese person would see it differently. And I got to interview um, a lady, a a business colleague, who actually lived through the firestorms in Tokyo at the end of World War II. I mean, she was she was very young, so you know her. But she remembers the sky just being orange, and she remembers their being burned out of her home and. You know, she and her family had to sleep where her father worked, and, um, you know, she said it was interesting to just get her take on it, because she said, oh, yeah, I was very mad at the Americans. I didn't understand mm-hmm. why they did that to us. I'm I really sure. didn't understand it until I was an adult. Right. Oh, and by the way, she also told me, because we were in a, in a in a conference room talking about all this, and she said, you know, Linda, I have never in my entire life talked to anyone about these experiences, because... Oh, wow. At the time, they didn't talk about it. It was a thing they'd all been through. It was trauma they'd all experienced and no one talked about it.
0: I've heard that from, uh, you know, U.S. war vets also will often not talk about their right. experience as well. It's just right. too traumatic. Right. Um. So you mentioned a short story. I, I want to go back to that and tell our listeners about that short story and how they can get it, maybe.
1: Oh, okay, sure.
0: <laughs> I'd like to do that. Yeah, um, I, just, I just finished
1: it. So, at this point, my opus consists of the, the debut novel we've been discussing, The Plum Blooms in Winter. Mm-hmm. And then the follow-on book is called The Mulberry Leaf Whispers, and it's going to release in mid-December. Okay, um, But I've complemented those uh, with – it's not really a short story. It grew, Okay. <laughs> Which unfortunately is what my writing tends to do. It always tends to be more involved and more word oh, count, of course, yeah, deeper editing, and yeah. But this this is actually almost a, a, a it's a novelette now. I would say okay. Um, but they're they're all three very related stories. The one I just finished it's more of a war story than either of the novels are. Both 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 of the novels have war sequences, battle mm-hmm. sequences, but this really is kind of a war story. Um, and he is the brother of a character who shows up in the Mulberry Leaf Whispers. Oh, um, neat! <laughs> but this story is about the Battle of Saipan, and I, honestly, I was I was moved to write the story because of thinking about VJ Day and thinking about cancel culture and thinking about the faith and courage and fortitude that our the greatest generation showed and and really wanting to have an an opportunity to commemorate that and also I wanted to compliment so in the plum blooms in winter we talk about an american who's a prisoner of the japanese mm-hmm. and it turns out that in the mulberry leaf whispers we're going to talk about a japanese man who's a prisoner of the americans
0: Wow! So my
1: my my books, you know, I I can't say I really intended to do this from the outset, but my books do kind of wind around, wind up involving the theme of imprisonment and freedom becomes Mm. a a big theme in my books. So the short story that the novelette, um, it's called "A Matter of Mind and Heart." and it kind of rounds out the picture because it talks about the Japanese American internment that happened during World War II.
0: Ah, yes.
1: So during World War II, the decision was made that having a, a significant Japanese American population on the West Coast was a was a strategic risk.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and so all of those people, you know, 120,000 people mm. were simply told, you know, sell everything you have, you've got seven days, sell everything you have, and we're putting you in an internment camp. Right. Obviously, that was just hugely unjust. Right. And historically unjustified. Yes. Two thirds of those people were actually citizens. So it was an unbelievable abridgment of the rights of American citizens. And um, so, and yet, um, Quite, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but quite a number of those young men enlisted and fought in World War II, and they fought with distinction. Um, The the Nisei is the the Japanese word for a second generation Japanese American. The Mm -hmm. Nisei regiment, which fought in Italy, the 442nd, uh, covered itself with glory. They just they served brilliantly. Wow. but something that's not so well known is that a number of those men also went into military intelligence because of their knowledge of the language, mm. and they served in the Pacific Theater.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so anyway, my, my, uh, my novelette follows one of those men, because we're talking about racial injustice, and we're talking about what does America mean? You know, and in, in, we, we talk about self-evident, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Right. And endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. And yet you look at the course of our history and we have not always lived out that ideal. That's right. (laughs) No, not by a long stretch. And so this is maybe one fairly recent, very egregious example where, you Mm
0: -hmm. know, one
1: group of Americans were deprived of those inalienable rights for no reason other than their ethnic background. And so if you're one of those young men who's been swept into an internment camp along with your entire family. How do you think about being an American and how do you think about going to war and putting your life at risk to serve your country? And so basically that's the question that the novel grapples with and, and hopefully comes to a satisfactory resolution around. I think it did.
0: Right. That's so interesting.
1: But I, I, I kind of did, I, you know, it, living here in Arizona, I live in the Phoenix area and um. There isn't a big memorial or anything, but I came to learn that one of these internment camps was located about 15 miles from my house. Wow. <laughs> and ever since I learned that, I think it's kind of been pressing
0: on me to write something yeah. about it.
1: So so I'm that's sure. where the uh, novelette
0: came from. Okay. Before you tell us more about your upcoming novel... I want to mention that the Plum Blooms in Winter won the 2019 Cascade Award, and it was also a finalist for the Christie Award and the Carroll Award, which that's just amazing.
1: <laughs> it um, amazed
0: me too, yeah. believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I want to ask is what was it like to receive the, the award and those nominations? Um, how did you hear the news and what was that like?
1: <laughs> well, it was thrilling, of course. I mean, you know, you know, as a novelist, every book is your baby and you always think your baby is beautiful, but you, right. you, you kind of hope other people will think it's beautiful too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it was certainly great to get that affirmation. I, I've always felt, especially with that book, that if the story was compelling, I don't deserve the credit for that. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, I labored long and hard to put that story on paper, but if the story was compelling, that wasn't me. That was that was God who really did those things through real people who lived those things. Right. So God gets the credit. The real people who live through those harrowing circumstances get the credit. Um, I'm just I'm just the scribe.
0: So yeah,
1: it is pretty thrilling to you know go to a gala awards ceremony and you know do your hair and do your makeup <laughs> and, and put on your prettiest. Thing and, you know, wait for that. May I please have the envelope moment? <laughs> right. I have the envelope, please. And uh, that, that all is pretty thrilling. And that's not something that happens to you a lot in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I certainly did my best to just sort of soak up that whole experience. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but, but really, as a Christian author, the last thing you want to do is be in this for people's applause. You right know, at the end of the day, yes, I I want readers to enjoy my stories. More importantly, I want readers to be transformed by my stories, um, but I want God to get the glory.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell us more about your upcoming book, which releases December fifteenth. Well, my so my upcoming book. Um, Early on
1: we talked about how I got sucked into this whole adventure by a story. I didn't I didn't get sucked in because I always wanted to be a writer and then I looked for my story. The the story pulled me in. And right. so the 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 story in the history book really kind of had three different components that were closely intertwined. I talked about God just reaching in and transforming lives in the middle of very dark circumstances and and kind of just piercing through those Dark circumstances with light and transforming lives. There, I just said the same thing like two different ways in one sentence. <laughs> but there actually were three stories intertwined, and so the Plum Blooms in Winter only told two of those stories. So it was always sort of a foregone conclusion that there would be a second book that would tell the third. So okay. that's what the Mulberry Leaf Whispers is. It's it's the World War Two story is closely related to the story in Plum. Um, mm. It's a story of sort of a lost character who appears at the end of Plum and sort of how he came to be the lost character and what happened in those intervening years.
0: Oh, Um,
1: Oh, And stepping back a little, so The Mulberry Leaf Whispers is a little different in that it is a time slip and partly just because I I was intrigued by the time slip uh, technique and wanted to just experiment with it.
0: It's interesting because um the plum blooms in winter is I kept thinking this is kind of a time slip because it goes from it goes back and forth between Dave's imprisonment and then Miyako's post-war life later post war yes. experience, yeah. So you kind of got yeah, a little. It's a very with that. small
1: time slip, so right? This is this is a big time slip. Okay. Mulberry Leaf Whispers goes back to the samurai period. Oh so wow! I've got a World War II timeline, which is closely related to the story in Plum, and then a samurai timeline. So think Shogun, because
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: actually it is it's set in almost exactly the same time period as Shogun.
0: Wow! Um,
1: and so that was, but. It's interesting because when I started the book, I didn't entirely know what was going to pull the two stories together. I was waiting for God to show up there. God, show yeah. up and show me how these two stories tie together. But in the end, both of the characters are grappling with what really is a timeless question, which is, which lives matter? Right. So for the Japanese, the World War II character, he uh, he becomes a prisoner early on. And in their culture, you can go no lower than that. You know, you're supposed Mm -hmm. to fight to the death. You didn't fight to the death. Now you're a prisoner. You are just, you are lower than an earthworm. Mm -hmm. And so, does his life matter? And I think a lot of returning veterans do struggle with that. They do struggle with, after all the evil I've seen, maybe even participated in, you know, what can I still have faith in? Is my life worth living? And right. so, he's got that struggle. Does my life matter? And then later in the book, he has to struggle with some other questions around which lives matter.
0: Mm. And
1: similarly, in the samurai era, life was pretty cheap. And so, it's a female character in the samurai. Sono is the character in the samurai era. And um, that was an era when when there was, they didn't, they used a different term, but basically there was a very rigid caste system in Japan and Um, Mm. You were either a have or a (laughs) have-not. So she's put in a position where she has to decide to defend um, someone whose life is considered to be dispensable in her culture.
0: Wow. So
1: they both wind up having to fight a battle over which lives matter. Mm,
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think it's obviously I started writing that book three years ago, so I could not have anticipated (laughs) <laughs> What's going on right now. What's going on right now. So I think God just had his handprints on that.
0: Yes. So to finish up, do you have a favorite historical fiction author or a favorite historical novel that you've read this year? Can you recommend some?
1: Well, I love Francine Rivers. Um, okay. Everybody loves Francine yes. Rivers. That's that's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy a lot of the other World War II authors. I enjoy Sarah Sundin's book. I enjoy books. I enjoy Melanie Dobson a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to confess that most of my reading. They always say that writers should be readers, and I, I don't doubt that's true. But unfortunately, most of my reading is research. Well, and, it kind of has to
0: be, some yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I read like really obscure things that no one else would be interested
0: in. <laughs> oh, well, you you need to for your books, right? So. Right, right and then you're bringing you're making those obscure things more accessible to other readers so right that's good shining light into those obscure corners yes this was a great conversation linda what's the best way to follow you online i'm very active on my facebook author page linda okay. thompson um
1: i'm i'm l thompson books everywhere which okay. is a little awkward, but Linda Thompson was taken by a reality uh, TV star. <laughs> yeah so I'm L Thompson books on Instagram, I'm L Thompson books on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, but I'm most active on my Facebook author page. Okay. and yes, if you if you come to my website, you can uh, absolutely follow me there. i I actually sort of have two different mailing lists one one that's more devoted to my fiction and one that's more my my uh, Bible
0: teaching blog, which.
1: Mm. is kind of about Bible intersecting history.
0: Oh, neat. Okay. Well, it was great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here today.
1: Well, and thank you. This was a lot of fun,
0: Okay, friends. So that novelette she talked about, that is the book she's making available to you. it is It was originally a gift for her subscribers. Um, but now, the only way to get it for the general public is to pre-order her book. Um, the Mulberry Leaf Whispers, and it's part of a kind of a suite of gifts that you get if you pre-order her book. But just for my listeners, Linda has made that book available as an ebook. It's titled A Matter of Mind and Heart, and you can download it by going to lthompsonbooks.com dot slash free book. So I will also put the link to that in my show notes. Make sure you check out the show notes. Um, just in case you want to pre-order Linda's book. Check out the other links I have there related to our conversation today. You can find all the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And guys, go to my Instagram too. I'm Treat on Instagram, and you can find me there. I try to go onto my stories and talk about the new podcast every week. So it would be really fun to connect with you on there. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen. Have a fantastic week and tune in again next week. When I talk to star Ayers about her new book, as usual, I'm going to leave you with a quote. Marcus Garvey said a people without the knowledge of their past history, origin and culture is like a tree without roots.